turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, that's in the New Testament, towards the back of your Bible. Book of Galatians. If you're visiting with us this morning, as we have several visitors, we are in the midst of a a six-week series on the gospel. As a part of that series, in the middle portion of it, there's four key words that we talked about. It kind of serve as a framework of the gospel message. Four words that, that we come to, that we remember, and, and are key themes, key words for what the gospel is. Those words are God, man, Jesus, and response. And so we've taken a week and we looked at God, the message we need to know. And we think about the gospel message, the good news of God, that God is the holy Lord of all creation. He created all things. And because he is the holy Lord of all creation, he must and can judge the sins of man. We talked about man. We understand that man was created in the image of God. He was created to have fellowship and communion with God, but man rebelled against God. And because of man's rebellion, Adam's original sin has been passed down in which we inherit that sin. And we are all born sinners and we all choose to sin because of that. And the penalty for that, the wages of sin is death. There's separation that has been brought due to our sin between us and God. And there's nothing that we can do as men to remove that separation. Nothing we can do to pay the price to be reconciled back to God. So that brings us now to our passage today in Galatians. We look at the third key word, the third key component of the gospel message, Jesus. I want to begin our time, you can stay there in Galatians, but I want to, I want to read to you a passage from Matthew chapter 16 that I, I believe sets the tone for what we need to consider this morning when we think about Christ. We have an interesting moment, a key moment in the life of Christ as he goes about ministry with the disciples. And in Matthew 16 verse 13, we read this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This, this same interchange, the same interaction that happened between Jesus and his disciples truly happens every day in our world. It, it's, a, it, it's an occurrence that we see in that if, if, if God looks at us and says, who do people say that I am? You're going to get all sorts of answers. Now, we might say, well, well people say you're, you're a really good teacher. Some people say you were a prophet. Some people say you didn't exist. Some people say, and, and they, there's all sorts of answers, right? And then Jesus looks and he, he comes around to perhaps the key question is who do you say that I am? How do you answer that question this morning? We know we live in a day in which people have varying opinions about who God is. 
But those opinions do not change the truth of who he truly is. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look and, and look at Scripture and find out who is Christ. What has Christ done? And I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I'm going to give you a lot of passages of Scripture this morning. If, if you don't get them all, and some of you are chuckling, right? Well, we always get a lot of passages of Scripture. Well, you're going to get more maybe this morning. If you don't get them all, we'll post them later, okay? But I want you to see the, a, a large portion of Scripture and what it teaches about who Christ is. Because we don't build our opinions about Christ based on culture, based on outside evidence. We base our understanding of who Christ is on the truth of God's Word. And as my dad would say, your opinion of who Christ is doesn't mean a hill of beans. I don't know what a hill of beans is and what the significance is, but I gathered as a kid that it mean much. What means a lot is what God's Word says about who Christ is, and that's what we'll look at today. So we turn to Galatians Galatians is a letter that, that Paul wrote. If you just look at Galatians 1, you see that it, it is written to the churches of Galatia. So the churches that are in that area, of the Roman province of Galatia, and he writes to them. His, his main thrust in the letter, if you've read it before, is that salvation is by faith alone, that man is justified by faith alone. You, you can see later, you can look back at it, but if you look at Galatians 2, 15, and 16, there's a, a critical portion of the letter that talks about salvation and justification by faith alone. And then we come back to chapter 3, verse 26, just before the passage we'll read this morning, where we read, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on who you are, where you're born, what, you, what you've achieved. It's based on faith. That is where salvation comes. And we read, and there's really this kind of big section from chapter 3, verse 15, all the way into chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul deals with this idea that Christ alone saves us and frees us from the bondage of sin, the law, and the principles of the world. And so it is Christ in whom we have freedom. And we don't have time to cover all of those things and look at everything. We don't even have time to cover everything in Galatians 4, 1 through 7 this morning. We're going to read it for the sake of context, and we're going to focus our time this morning on two verses, Galatians 4, verses 4 and five. Let's read beginning in chapter four, verse one. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We come to this passage, we jump into chapter 4, verse 1, and, and it's just a continuation of, of what Paul's teaching there in verses 23 to, to 29. You know the original text didn't have verses and chapter divisions. It was a letter. It was written as a letter. 
And so that, that paragraph before, is, is he's talking about those who are in, in bondage and captive to the law, and we are set free through faith in Christ. You might remember, if you were here last week, we talked about and we looked at pastors that described us as being enslaved to sin. We talked about how the will is in bondage to sin according to Scripture. We saw that in John 8, 34, Romans 6, 6 through 7, and then again in Romans 6, 16 were kind of our, our texts that showed that in Scripture. In Galatians, Paul also describes us as not only being enslaved to sin, but also in verses 23 and 26, or 23 to 26 of chapter 3, we're in bondage to the law, and then we're also in bondage to the principles of the world in Galatians 4, 3. So we're in bondage to sin, we're in bondage to the law, and we're in bondage to the elementary principles of the world outside of Christ. So if Christ has not freed you, if he's not set you free through salvation, then you're in bondage. That's the, the bottom line of Scripture, is that outside of the gracious saving work of Christ, men and women are in bondage to sin, the law, and the elementary principles of the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, what, does that, what does that mean practically? If we, we talk about that, and you, you, you perhaps would answer just like the Pharisees did in, in John 8, where, where Jesus says something about them being in bondage to sin. They said, we're not in bondage. We're, we're sons of Abraham. We're not, we're not in bondage to anyone. So what does that mean? I, I would say most of us, well, all of us in here would say, well, I'm not in, I'm not in bondage. I, I'm not a slave to anyone. So what does that mean practically? That outside of Christ, you're in bondage. Well, the first thing it means is that it means your sinful desires hold authority over you. Your sinful desires hold authority. That's what it means to, to be in bondage to sin. So, so that, that anger that lashes out towards your family members, that lustful eye that, that keeps on looking at images or pictures or videos of ungodliness, that, that pride that, that seeks glory from everywhere around, that you're, you're constantly wanting people to look at you and magnify you and see how great you are. That, that jealousy that you, you walk and you seem to go from place to place to place thinking jealous, covetous thoughts of what other people have. Those words that, that you just keep saying, you keep coming back to that, that are words of, of gossip and slander, obscenity, hatred. All of those things that you just can't seem to shake. You, you can't get rid of them. You just keep doing them. You may stop for a time. You may say, you know what? I'm not going to think about those things. I'm going to step away from my computer. I'm going put to put a lock screen on there. I'm going to not say those things anymore. I'm not going to post that. Well, and then a few weeks, a few months, maybe just a few hours later, there you are doing it again. Why? Because you're in bondage to those things. It, it, it means that you're constantly trying to justify yourself by how religious you are. To, to say that you're in bondage to the law means that you live life based on not crossing this or that line, essentially. That you're constantly walking around going, oh, hey, I'm not crossing that line, I'm not crossing this line, so I'm good. And you're just kind of navigating life going, I've set these lines of religiosity here and here and here and here, and as long as I stay in between those lines and I, I look like I'm walking through a maze and I'm okay. You're constantly trying to prove yourself to others, or even in your own mind about how good of a person you are. You look and say, well, I, I could be like him or her, but I'm not. I'm like me. Or you prove yourself by how often you go to church, or what you do for the church, or what you give to the church, how you look at church, what people think of you, the position you hold at church. 
Or in your mind, you're constantly saying, well, I didn't do that. I did that. You're bound to the law. Or, elementary principles of the world, it means that you're under the rule and the ways and the philosophy of man. So the things that the, that the world says is right, you say is right. What the world says is valuable, you value. What the, se- the world says will bring meaning to life, you invest your life in and look to it for meaning. What the world says is the answer to the problems, you buy into. And you depend on that for the answers, even though that answer just keeps changing. Keeps changing. Keeps changing. The, the rug keeps getting moved out from under you. Oh, let me get over here. Oh, over here. Why do you stay? Why do you keep doing that? Because outside of Christ, if you've not been set free from the bondage of the elementary principles of the world, then you continue to live under them. You need Christ. And the good news is that God sent him. God sent Christ to free us from bondage. Let's look at our text in verse 4. The first thing he says is he says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, that that could be, be translated just the right time or the proper time or when the time had fully come or when the time came to completion. The sending of Jesus, what this means is that the sending of Jesus was a part of God's plan. We read this in Mark 1, 14 to 15, where we read, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The time, not a time. It's not a good time. It is the time set forth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Romans 5, 6, we read, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, we we read this incredible passage in him, talking about Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The sending of Jesus was not an afterthought. It was not a plan B. We read in Acts 2, 23, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, but it was God's plan in the fullness of time. In 1 Peter 1, 20, we read that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This is a part of God's plan. It's not an afterthought. It's what God ordained. It's what God decreed would happen. And it happened. How did God plan to set his love and his mercy upon those he would redeem? He planned to send Christ. He planned to send his one and only son. Jesus came because it was part of God, the triune God's plan. God does not do things accidentally. He's not adjust his plans, his schedule according to how the day goes. He's not waking up today going, well, we'll just see how Sunday goes, and if it goes well, then I'll do this. If this happens, well, I don't know what I'll do. Golly, I'll just kind of figure something out as I go. That's not how God operates. He's not the victim of fate. He's not sitting back wringing his hands over what could happen tomorrow. 
God is a mighty God. The God of Scripture that we read in Ephesians 1 through 11, or sorry, 111, is the God who is mighty and works all things according to the counsel of His purpose, of His will. He makes plans, He makes promises, He makes decrees, and He is able to carry them out. He keeps those promises because He is able to keep them. We make promises, sometimes we can't keep them. Why? Because we don't have the ability to keep them. We make promises hopeful we can keep them, but we may not. God makes promises knowing he will keep them because he can and he is able to do so. He is in control of all things. The cross is perhaps the the greatest demonstration of that. One who is so great and so mighty and so big that he took the worst, most tragic death and turned it into and made it and used it to bring about the greatest salvation. The worst day was the greatest day, all because God is a great and a mighty God. And the reality is is that some of you sit in here today and you've been sold an unbiblical Jesus. You've been told about this unbiblical Jesus who's just your buddy, who's just your friend, who's just somebody you kind of add on. He's weak. He just wants you to feel good. He just wants you to really have a great day. But he's not actually so powerful and strong that he could actually accomplish all things according to his will. He may be a nice little friend. He may be a great bumper sticker that you put on the back of your car. But I don't know if I would go so far to say he's sovereign over all things. And you come in buying that Jesus. The problem is that Jesus is not the biblical Jesus. When we turn to the page of the scripture, you behold this mighty, incredibly awesome, sovereign, omnipotent God who is holy and created all things, and he demonstrated his love for man in sending his son to die for man. What a magnificent, incredible God he is. And that's what we see in in Galatians 4. In the fullness of time had come. What did God do? He sent forth his son. He sent his son. What's he do? What's his plan? He sends Christ at just the right time. God sent That's an important word, important phrase. God sent his son. We read the same thing. 1 John 4, 9 to 10. We read, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. We, we don't define love because we love God. We don't define love by looking at us and going, hey, look at how we love God. We define love by looking at God, the holy God who created all things, who is holy and just and righteous, and look at the fact that he sent his son to be propitiation. That's how we define love is that he sent his son for us. You read John 3, 16 to 17, a very known passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's the second part, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did God send his son? So that we might be saved. You know what this tells us? Remember two weeks ago, we talked about God as the creator. We looked at the evidence, how, how creation shouts and declares and gives evidence of God's existence. We talked about the fact that he created all things. He was the first cause. This tells us not only is God the first cause of creation, he's the first cause of salvation. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This was no backup plan. This wasn't something that was like, well, I hope this happens. This is the plan of God Almighty. And that plan came in the fullness of time. And that plan was to send forth his son. Why is it possible for us to have life? Because God sent his son. Why is it possible for us to be freed from the bondage of sin and the elementary principles of the world and, and law? Because God sent his son. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that our God took initiative. That he is the first cause, the primary cause, the cause of creation and salvation. So let's ask a question then. We think about Jesus, we think about the gospel message. Who was Jesus? Who was he? There, there's three descriptions of Jesus in verse 4 that we need to consider this morning. Three descriptions of who Christ is. You can break this up. I think it was um, Timothy George, the theologian, said that verse 4 is all about Christology and verse 5 is soteriology. So verse 4 talks about who God is, who Christ is, and verse 5 talks about what he's done to save us. So in verse 4, we find three descriptions of Christ. First, it says that God sent forth his son. That's significant. He sends forth his son. That means that Jesus is divine. This is the divinity of Christ. He didn't send someone to tell us about him, about his son. He didn't send someone that was like his son, that was real close, really similar. He didn't send someone that's an ambassador of his son. No, God sends forth his very son. His very son. So Hebrews 1.3 says that he, talking about Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In Philippians 2.6, Jesus is described as existing in the form of God. In Colossians 2.9, we read, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It is God's son. He sent forth his son. Now, this is significant because it reveals also the pre-existence of Christ. So Jesus does not come into existence when he's born of a woman. He existed before all time. He existed before this happened. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the Son of God, has eternally existed. So the point that he began to exist was not at the incarnation. There was no point at which Christ began to exist. He always has existed. He is God. He is divine. The theologian John Stott, some of you have probably read some of him. If you haven't, his book, Basic Christianity, if you have questions about Christianity or you want to just really just have a good understanding of the basic teachings of what it means to follow Christ and the gospel, then Basic Christianity is a great little book you should read. But he gives three evidences in that book of the divinity of Christ. Here's the three things that he notes. One, he says the evidence is his claims, the claims that Jesus made. You're, you're probably familiar with John 14, 6, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the claim of Christ that he is indeed God. There is no other way, no other truth, no other life. It is him. It is him. He's not talking about it. He is it. Okay? So his claims. The second thing he points to, or another thing that he points to in the claims of Christ is in the book of John, there are seven different times when Jesus says, I am. And he does that intentionally. And when he does, he is intentionally claiming the identity of God, the great I am, the name that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3 and 4. 
He's claiming that as his own. And if you look contextually and you just read the text, you'll see that because the response when he makes those statements, the Pharisees don't just sit back and go, oh, that's interesting, huh, cool. No, they get angry. Why? Because they know what he's doing. They know he's saying, I am. But Yahweh, the great I am, that's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Seven times he says that in the book of John. If you look at Luke 7, 36 to 50, he claims to have authority to forgive sins. And he, he does so claiming and knowing that God alone has the authority to forgive sins. And he says, I have forgiven you. God alone can do that. So his claims, there's many more, but we'll have to stop there this morning for the sake of time. His claims point to his divinity. Second thing that points to his divinity is his character. His character through life, that he was without sin. We, we read in Luke 23, 13 to 15, that Pilate nor Herod could find any fault in him. When we read about Judas after his act, in, in Matthew 27, 4, after his act of betrayal, we read that Judas grieved. Why? Because he betrayed innocent blood. He just betrayed an innocent man. In 1 Peter 1.19, we read without, or sorry, with the precious blood of Christ, we're, we're redeemed like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In 1 Peter 2.22, we read that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In Hebrews 4.15, Jesus was in every respect may, uh, been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Time and time again, the testimony of Scripture is that he was without sin. Without sin. So his character was unblemished. His character was sinless, perfect, holy. And then finally, the third piece of evidence that, that Stott referenced was his resurrection. His resurrection. In, in Mark 9.31, Jesus sits down and he says this. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. That's, that's a significant statement, Right? I mean, that's a significant statement to say, this is going to happen. I'm, I'm going to be killed. Now, I, I would say there's many times in history where a similar statement has been said by various men. We're going to raid the beaches of Normandy. And I probably won't come back. It's a significant statement. But it's not a unique statement. You know what makes Jesus' statement unique? It didn't end there. You know what Jesus says when he talks to his disciples? He says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. See, Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to Jerusalem and I will be killed. But three days later, I will rise from the grave. Again, it's a part of God's plan. It shows God's power. The resurrection will always be the greatest evidence of Jesus' divinity. The Gospels testify to it. The apostles witnessed it. The church proclaims it. History supports it. The resurrection verifies and proclaims and attests to the divinity of Christ. So much so that you know, many of you in here know this, that 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul talks about the fact that without the resurrection, our faith and our preaching are useless. They're in vain. Paul, the apostle, says it's worthless if it's not for the resurrection. The resurrection attests to the deity of Christ. So the first thing we see there in Galatians 4.4 4 is that God sent forth his son. 
his son. Jesus is fully God. But then he says what? He sent forth his son, born of woman. Born of woman. So the second thing we learn about Christ is that he was not only just fully God, he was fully man. He was fully God and fully man. Now your expensive theological word for the morning that you can write down and learn and throw out this week sometime in the workplace and people look at you like you're crazy is hypostatic union. It's the, it's the idea that in the person of Jesus Christ is the fully divine nature and the fully human nature. He wasn't like God for a little while and then ceased to be God. He wasn't a man who the Holy Spirit just descended upon and then left. He was fully God. He was fully man. That did not change. It's who he is. It's who he is. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John, it's very clear that passage, John 1.18, the introduction to the Gospel of John, that the Word is Christ. In his, verse 14, He became flesh. He became flesh. In Philippians 2.7, Jesus is born in the likeness of men. We read, and we talked about this last week. You remember back in Genesis 3.15? You remember I said this is the, the first glimpse of the Gospel, the first broadcast of good news, the, the first first hope we have that, that God would redeem. Genesis 3.15, when, when God looks at Eve and he says, I'll put enmity between you, or sorry, he looks at Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now, what that means is he will strike a death blow to you. He will defeat you. And he is her offspring. It was through Eve's seed that God cast the blow of death and defeat upon Satan. Or Colossians 2.9, talking about the humanity of Christ, that in Christ, here, here's fully divine, fully human right here. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness, not part of it, not a little bit of it, not for a time being, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He was fully God, fully man. He was the ultimate, final, and full revelation of God to man. I want to ask you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to take just a minute to look at this passage. Now think about the humanity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2. There's four or five books to the right in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we think about fully God, fully man, the humanity of Christ. The writer of Hebrews has spent time in, in chapter 1 talking about the supremacy, right, the supremacy of God's Son. We read uh, uh, Hebrews 1, 3, talking about the divinity of Christ. So he set Christ up as fully divine, that there's no one else that compares. He is above and supreme over all, right? And we come to verse 14 of chapter 2 and we read this. Since therefore the children are, or sorry, sorry, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, I mean Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So that I means he, he partook of the same thing, he partook of the, the flesh and the blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Do you remember, you remember what 1 Peter 1.12 says? He, I think it's significant. He says, surely it's not the angels that he helps. He, he helps the offspring of Abraham. God does not send forth his son to redeem angels that have fallen and rebelled against him. In, in 1 Peter 1.12, the angels are described as those who long to understand. They long to look unto, upon something so sweet and special as salvation. They long to know the mercy and the grace of God. They don't. They can look and they behold it, but they can't experience it. Man experiences the salvation, the mercy, and the grace of God. So surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He, he was made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus was a man. He came and took on flesh. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, the divine, fully God, fully man. So we see the first two statements there. Galatians 4 makes a third statement. Verse 4. A third statement about who God is, who Christ is. He says that he was, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Born under the law. This simply means that, that he was born under the same rules, regulations, standards as every other man. He was, again, remember, he was made like us in every respect. So the, the law that we rebel against, the law that we violate, the law that we disobey is the same law that Jesus submitted himself to, that, that he lived within, that he perfectly obeyed. Now, now mind you, the biblical writers are writing all this that, that we just read in, in Hebrews, everything that we've read in Galatians, everything, that, all the verses that I read about him being without sin. The biblical writers are writing to their contemporaries. We, we have the testimony of the Gospels that, that talk about him going before Pilate and, and Herod and they can't find anything wrong in him. And mind you, with all that going on, he's, he's living in front of, he's ministering in front of, he's debating with the Pharisees. They can't uncover any sin in him. He lives perfectly under the law. Why does he do that? He does that to fulfill all righteousness, that he would be the perfect sacrifice. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, for our sake... He made him, talking about God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a significant passage for us. It, it teaches us that the righteousness that was Christ is applied to the account of those who trust in him. It's the applied righteousness of Christ. It is given to us, not because we've earned it, not because we're righteous. We definitely are not. We know that. Everyone in this room, believer or unbeliever, you know you're not righteous. I know I'm not righteous. The only way I can stand before God is to be clothed in His righteousness. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. But praise God that Jesus never did. He upheld and met every part of God's holy standard on our behalf. On our behalf. 
You know what this means? This means that the holiness that was his at birth as the divine son of God was his at death as the sinless son of man. And the good news is it is ours through faith as it is applied to our account through his blood. That's an incredible thing to think about. To just mull over. He was born sinless with no sin nature. Why? Why? Because he was born of Eve's offspring. Of the Holy Spirit. He did not have the seed of Adam. The inherited sin of Adam. He was born sinless. And he never sinned throughout life. So the holiness he was born with was the holiness he maintained. He did not lose his holiness. And when he went to the cross, it was for nothing of his own. It was a demonstration of God's love for us to pay the price for our sins. And that's what verse 5 talks about. Why did Jesus come? What did he do? What do we see who he is? In verse 4, we see he's fully God, fully man who lived under the law, lived sinless. In verse 5, we see what he did. What did he do? Verse 5, he, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He came to redeem us. God sent forth his son for an express purpose to redeem those under the law. That's why Jesus said in John, or Mac, uh, Mark 10, 45, I'll get it out. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Redemption is a term we get. It's a term we understand. It's a, it's a market term, right? That it, it applies and, and describes the, the payment of something, the payment of a necessary price to redeem something that you want, right? It's paying that price. The, the ransom is paying a price for, to redeem or to free, to get something. We, we read earlier that we're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to the law. We're in bondage to the elementary principles of the world. And we are unable to free ourselves from those. We are unable to pay the price for our freedom. But Jesus Christ paid the necessary price. He paid that price. How did he do it? He did that by offering himself as a sacrifice, as a propitiation to the Father. He bears the wrath of God Almighty, the wrath that sin deserves. He bore it on a cross for his people. That's what Romans 3, 23 to 25 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What was the price that Jesus paid? His blood. Why did he pay it? Because we owed a debt that we could not pay and he gave us life through his death. That is why he did it. Jesus truly died in our place. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't some fanciful story. This isn't something that looked like he died. He truly died. That's the significance of Hebrews 9.22 that teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be a shedding of blood. There has to be a sacrifice. It's what's known as substitutionary atonement. That, that Christ came and he died in our place to pay the price for our sin, taking the wrath of God the Father that we might be justified before him and have eternal life with him. He did that in our place. He was our substitute. He accomplished the work that had to be done to redeem his people from their sins. The good news is we talked about a few moments ago, John Stott referenced to 
He didn't just die. He didn't just die. He rose from the grave. You remember, you remember, you don't have to flip over there. Remember Hebrews 2 said that he came through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Any of us in this room can say, hey, I'm going to die for you and I'm going to die for sin. And we go and we die. You know what the end result of that death is? Death. Puritan John Owen wrote a book that just the title alone I love. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. See, death is dead in the death of Christ because Christ is no longer dead. Christ dies and he raises again victorious over death, defeating death, what none of us could do. Christ dies as sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 again says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Praise God. He rose. He did rise. And you're not still in your sins if you've trusted him. Jesus had the power to lay his life down and raise it up again. John 10, 18. He says, I lay my life down and I have the power to raise it up again. He defeated death that we might have life. Jesus' death means the debt of sin has been paid. His resurrection means life is available and given to all who believe. He came to redeem. Why did God send forth his son, born of a woman, born under law? To redeem. To redeem. He didn't come just to help us to be good moral people. He didn't come just to help us to have some good principles to found a nation on. He didn't come just to help us have a good time on a Sunday morning and have some good friends. He came to redeem. He came to pay the price. He came to give his life. And what's the result of that? What's the result? What does he say in verse 5? He came to redeem those under the law so that. Why? So that. So that we might have adoption as sons. That we might be adopted into his family through faith alone. That simply means that we're given a holy father. We're given a new name. We're given a heavenly inheritance. We're given a new family. It means that Jesus' past work for us who are in bondage has present rights and a future inheritance for us as sons and daughters. We look to Christ. We don't look to who we are. We don't look to what we're achieving. We look back to Christ and what he's done, the finished work of Christ. Hebrews talks again that it is something that he did once for all. It's complete. It's sufficient. And because of that, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the king, all who have trusted in Christ alone. So why does this matter? Why does it matter? Why, why does it matter that God sent Jesus? But, because we can't save ourselves. It matters because it shows us a glimpse of God's love. It matters because we can be saved from the wrath to come through him. Why does it matter that Jesus was divine? Why, why does that matter? Why does it make a difference? Why is it important for us to consider that this morning? It matters because he was not born from the seed of man, of Adam. He did not inherit sin. Him being divine means he is holy. He's not born a sinner. He never chose to sin. Therefore, he is the perfect righteous, spotless, holy sacrifice for sins. Why does it matter that Jesus was human? Because as a man, Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin, making him our great high priest. That means 
he knows. He gets it. He understands. The temptation that you face, he understands. It means that because he was a man, he suffered. He truly suffered. He agonized. He wept. He hurt. He had pain. And he died at the hands of men. Why? So that he might rise and conquer death, attaining salvation for men. Why, why does it matter that Jesus was born under the law? Because he perfectly fulfilled it. He lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to the law, and his righteousness is then applied to those who believe. It's not just that Jesus came and died and that's it. No, it's Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death in your place. In your place. He lived a perfect life. That's why it matters that he was born under the law. Why does it matter that Jesus redeemed us? Because when a debt is owed, someone has to pay it. Ask any banker sitting in this room. When a debt's owed, somebody has to pay it. And the fact that he sent Christ to redeem means that he paid the necessary price for our sin debt to be forgiven. A debt too great for us to pay, a debt beyond our ability to pay, he paid for us. So that we who were strangers and slaves have been adopted as sons of and daughters of God Most High. That's why it matters. Listen, this morning, I, I want you to know that God's holiness matters. God being the creator and Lord over all creation matters. Our sin and rebellion matters. The dilemma that that puts us in before God as sinners standing before a holy God that has every right to judge us and must judge us because his character demands it and it would violate who he is to not judge us. That dilemma that we face matters. Jesus matters. Who Jesus is matters. What Jesus did matters. And where Jesus is now matters. He is not dead. He rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. Tonight at Sacred Winds, we're going to look forward to that. God's holiness and lordship matters. Our sin matters. Jesus matters. Where he is matters. And so we look forward to the consummation of all things in which he comes and we stand before him and we rejoice in the coming of our king. The gospel matters. The gospel matters. So I would ask if you're here today and you're not a believer, I would ask, would you trust Jesus Christ is Lord today. Salvation is not found in doing anything. It's not found in being a certain person, a type of person, joining a church. Salvation, according to Scripture, and we'll look at this next week. Salvation comes through repentant faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead. Would you turn from your sins? And trust Christ as Lord today. If you would, I would love to talk to you down here. We're going to sing a song to close out. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Love to talk to you during that. I'd love to talk to you outside afterwards.
tonight at Sacred Winds. Any of the other pastors would love to talk to you. We'd love to help you turn to Christ. It's not that complicated, though. You can do that right now by simply turning from your sins and trusting Christ as Lord. Let's pray.